As we get started today, if we haven't met, my name is Mark. Uh, I get the opportunity of serving as the young adult pastor here at Grace. And uh, if it's your first time, we want to say welcome home. Come on, put your hands together for everyone here for the first time. Uh, I'm so glad that you're here. And we just hope that you feel like you're a part of the family here at the exchange. And uh, you came at a perfect night. We got a lot of different things going on. Uh, in fact, let me start with this on Friday. Somebody say Friday. Friday, we've got Friday night hangs, and I'm really excited about it. We're actually hanging right next door at Kaiser University. You're like, why at Kaiser? I don't want to go to school. We're going to be hanging out and doing a tailgate on the rooftop of their building over there. They're giving us the opportunity to gather at 6.30. It's going to be special, and I want to see you there. Bring someone with you. Invite somebody. Don't just bring something. Uh, bring, excuse me, don't just bring someone. Bring something, okay? And when I say that, not alcohol, okay? We ain't that type of church, okay? Let me, just, let me just put that before you. Bring a lawn chair, invite somebody. It's going to be a great night to hang and uh, build some relationships. But not only that, we're about 10 days away from Easter, and I'm really excited about this because uh, it's going to be a special Easter. Our lead pastor, he's been preparing a special message for this Easter, and I would love for you to join us at one of our seven locations uh, and bring somebody along with you. But today, we're kicking off a new collection, and it's called It's Personal. This is personal. Everybody say that. This is personal. This is personal. And I, I really am passionate about this uh, series that we're getting ready to go into because here's what I know. I think when I look at the church at large, not just a Grace Family Church thing, but the body of Christ, I think that many preachers and pastors and teachers, they do a good job of giving you what you want to hear. They do a really good job of giving you what you want to hear. And I just believe we're at a point in time in the church, I believe we're at a point in time in history where we don't need to be given what we want to hear. We need to be given what we need to hear. And in this collection, in this series, that's really what I'm really set out to do. I want to help you understand how to own your faith in today's day and age. So as we jump into this collection of This Is Personal, uh, I thought I'd probably be a little personal with you, okay? I want to be a little personal with you. I grew up in the church. Any church kids in the house? Anyone grow up in church? A lot of us grew up in the church. And here's what I know to be true. Um, back in the day, I'm like, you're probably looking at me like, bro, you're really not that old. You can't use that term yet. But anyways, uh, I remember way, way long ago, we had this thing called Sunday school. Anybody remember Sunday school? It's not like what we do in the zone. The zone is way too fun, way too cool. But I remember um, growing up in the church, like my family, at a point in time, we went to a Baptist church, we went to a Pentecostal church, we went to an Assemblies of God church. And let's just say, like, your, your boy was struggling to figure out what he believed, all these different types of churches, okay? But I remember going to the small little Assemblies of God church, and one of the things that we would always do were these, like, church plays, these skits. Anyone know what I'm talking about? It was like the most cringy, low-production performance you can find in town, okay? I remember not only doing um, those plays, but I also remember, how many remember sword drills? You know, I got it, you know? Sword drills and then scripture memorization. Anybody had to do scripture memorization? And, and scripture memorization, like, was the best thing ever for me. Like, I loved memorizing scripture. I remember uh, I was about eight years old. I memorized all of Romans chapter 8. All of Romans chapter 8. Um, my wife was asking me on the way here, like, can you still do it? And I'm like, let's try. Didn't get past verse 3. Anyways. <laughs> but I remember scripture memorization. But one of the first scriptures that I had memorized as a kid was John 3.16. Everybody knows that verse, right? Many of us know that verse. If you grew up in church or around church, John 3.16, for God so loved the world 
oh my gosh. Your children's pastor needs to be fired, okay? <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How many of you um, ever heard this about Tim Tebow? In 2009, in the national championship, college football national championship game, uh, Tim Tebow, he was running out of the tunnel, and as he ran out of the tunnel, the world couldn't help but notice he was wearing eye black. And written on his eye black was this verse, John 3.16. And literally within minutes, 90 million people Googled the meaning of that verse. It was amazing. 90 million people Googled the meaning of that verse. I just think that's so unique because I feel like that's kind of like America's verse. Like we kind of just use that verse. It's, it's not just a verse that we really hold on to its meaning. It's kind of become like an accessory. I think so many of us, we, we may have known this verse or heard this verse, but not only is it like an accessory verse, maybe it just became like a really cute tattoo. It's like the person that maybe has like John 3.16 tattoo, like pulling down their sleeve right now. Like, don't judge me, you know. Maybe it wasn't just like a, a cute tattoo, but it was just a good idea to throw it in your bio, bio but it, it's just such a convenient verse in this day and age. But I don't want to just stop at verse 16. I want to read verse 17 and 18. It says this. I'm going to start actually. John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. I think about this verse quite often, but it's amazing to me how many people may say this is their life verse, but yet they're not truly committed to walking in the things of God. It amazes me how many people say, you know, I can recite this verse, but at the end of the day, they truly don't even believe or trust that Jesus Christ came and lived the perfect life and died for their sin. This has just become America's accessory verse, and I'm preaching this message today because I don't want us to fall into this trap of this just being a verse that we recite out of routine or religious tradition or as an accessory to our faith. Because I believe today, one of our greatest problems is that we have cheapened this verse. We've cheapened the worth of this verse, and I want you to know this on the front end of this message. This verse ought to lead us to conviction, and in turn, it should lead to life transformation. It should lead you to conviction, and in turn, it should lead you to life transformation. You see, this verse, it's the cornerstone of our faith. As followers of Jesus, this is what we believe. This is the gospel. This is the good news that we believe has the power to change and transform lives. But do we really believe that? Do we really see this verse for all that it's worth? And today, I just want to take some time to speak to you from this idea. A message that transforms lives. A message that transforms lives. Now, it's context that I believe brings this text to life. So here's what we see. We're in John chapter three, and we see Jesus is on the scene, and as Jesus is on the scene, a man by the name of Nicodemus comes to Jesus. 
A man by the name of Nicodemus comes to Jesus. We're going to back up, and we're going to look at John chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. It says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night, somebody say at night, and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Unless they are born again. This was Jesus' words to Nicodemus. And I remember, like I mentioned, uh, growing up in the church at the Assemblies of God church that I went to, uh, I had the opportunity of being Nicodemus in our church's play. I don't know if that's a compliment. Don't know if that's an insult. I'm pretty sure Nicodemus wasn't black, okay? But I remember being Nicodemus, and I had to play like that part. And maybe you know this story where Nicodemus sees Jesus and the disciples gathering, and they're getting ready to set off on their journey. And Nicodemus, he starts weeping. He starts crying. And I remember, um, I don't sing, so don't judge, but I remember in the play, like, being Nicodemus, I was dressed like him. I had to sing this song, Nicodemus sat on the road and he cried, he cried, oh, oh, he is the way. You don't have to clap for me. I'm not good, okay? He is the truth. He is the life. He is God. And as I was singing it, like they made me fall on my knees. It was like the most dramatic thing ever. Anyone ever watched The Office? And that episode where they're like all fake shooting each other and Dwight to the floor like that, like that was me playing Nicodemus, okay? Like falling over, like, God, I love you, I'm sorry, you know? Like it was super dramatic, super weird. <laughs> I don't even know why I just shared that with you. But anyways, <laughs> but what's important we see when we read this text is that Nicodemus, uh, he was a Pharisee or better known as a man that was a part of the Jewish council. What we learn about Nicodemus is he was a very religious man. He was very religious, and as a part of the Jewish council, he had known all of the Old Testament law. When I talk about the law, I'm not speaking about the law that we live by today. I'm not speaking about the Ten Commandments. I'm speaking about the hundreds of laws that uh, existed in the Old Testament Bible. And Nicodemus, he memorized each and every one of them. He knew the whole Old Testament front to back. It was deep in his heart. And in this moment, what's so interesting, as he was one of the Jewish men that sat in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, he was so committed to the Old Testament that his primary responsibility was to go sniff out anyone who would teach anything outside of the Old Testament. And Nicodemus' responsibility was not only to go and sniff out people who didn't teach on the Old Testament or uphold the Old Testament, he was in charge of shutting down their teaching. His job was to silence their teaching. So here in this moment, it's so unique when we look at the text because what does Nicodemus do? He finds Jesus. And what we learn in this moment is that Jesus, he just got done performing a miracle, turning water into wine. He's early into his ministry performing these signs and wonders, and crowds are starting to flock and follow after Jesus. And as Jesus is on the run doing his ministry, word gets back to the Jewish council that they need to sniff out this guy, Jesus, and shut him down. But what is Nicodemus, though? He goes to Jesus, and he goes, so Jesus, like, tell me, 
what's this, what's this all about, Jesus? Heard you've been performing signs and wonders and miracles. Heard you've been doing all of these different unique things. And he's really doing this with the motive to shut Jesus down. I don't want you to miss this. It's important you understand what's taking place in this moment. The Bible's creating tension for us. Because Nicodemus wants to shut down Jesus' teaching, but Jesus doesn't shrink back in that moment. Jesus holds his ground. Nicodemus is like, yo, you shouldn't be healing people. You shouldn't be preaching this truth. Like, are you really who you say you are? He was trying to get it out of Jesus. Like, just say that you're the son of God so I can take you back. And Jesus doesn't, doesn't shrink back. Jesus looks at him in the eye. He tells him, I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. But what's so unique to me is the fact that these men love the Old Testament law so much. They were so religious that they favored religion over relationship. These men, they, they favor the idea that someone could uphold the law. They were all truth with no grace. And in this moment, Jesus is about to change Nicodemus' world. He's about to show him how to have truth, but also have grace. And I just want to pause for a moment because these men, they were so corrupt and wicked in their thinking. They literally believed only the righteous could make it into heaven. Like only those who never live in sin uh, understand and live out the whole Old Testament. Those are the people that could get into heaven. And in this moment, Jesus comes back at Nicodemus and he goes, I want you to understand I have come to call not those who think they are righteous to salvation, but I have called the sinners to grace. Hear what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am not worried about religion. I am focused on relationship. I am not just focused on truth. I come with grace. And it's important you understand, and I'm sharing this with passion, because some of you, maybe you grew up in a different denomination, a different type of church. I want you to know, Jesus doesn't care about religion. He cares about having a relationship with him. That's what brings security with Jesus. And in this moment, as they sit there, in verse 2, what we learn is that Nicodemus came to Jesus in the middle of the night. He came to Jesus in the middle of the night. I think it's important that we stop to kind of highlight this. I believe Nicodemus, and scholars would actually say, Nicodemus came to Jesus in the middle of the night because if he came in midday, all of the people in public would see that Nicodemus was talking to Jesus. So what did that mean for Nicodemus? He had no choice but to shut down Jesus' teaching. But I believe wholeheartedly, when we look at the life of Nicodemus, he was curious about Jesus. He was a little apprehensive. He was kind of thinking in his mind, could this actually be the son of God? So Nicodemus is like, hey, teacher, doesn't call him Messiah. He's like, yo, like, you're doing all these things, bro. Help me understand. Like, are you, are you like breaking the rules? Like, what's going on? And Jesus looks at him in the eye and he explains that he is who he says he is. He is the son of God, the one who came not only to perform signs and wonders, but he came to seek and serve and save the lost. And Nicodemus doesn't like that answer, I'm sure, deep down in his heart. But there's a reason why he doesn't turn Jesus into the Jewish council. Because he had known it was the truth. Deep down in his heart, he, he had known it was the truth. Nicodemus, he was, he was curious. And as Jesus responds to him and clarifies the gospel truth, 
What we learn in the text is that Jesus tells him, to get into heaven, one must believe that I am the son of God and I came to fulfill the law and then they will be born again. And Nicodemus replies, he says, what do you mean? I'm sure Nicodemus is like, what do you mean? Jesus is like, you're, you're confusing me. Like, I'm not tracking with you. But listen to what Jesus says in John chapter three, verse 14. Jesus responds to Nicodemus's question and he says, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. I love the genius of Jesus because as we look at this text, it's important you understand when Jesus talks about Moses holding up that serpent, he's reciting something that took place in the book of Numbers. He's reciting something that took place in Numbers chapter 21. What this means to us today, and as a church, I believe this is a call out, that we need to speak in a language and in terms that people who are not yet followers of Jesus can understand. See, Nicodemus didn't understand what Jesus was saying when Jesus was talking about the fact that he came to die and the fact that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. But what did Jesus do? He spoke in a language that he could understand. I just wonder today, there's a world that is searching for answers. I wonder, are you speaking in your terms or a language that meets them where they are? I just want to pause and kind of, like, this is not what my message is built around, but I just need you to understand there are millions of people in this city that are curious about what we believe and why we believe it. There are millions of people that are searching for answers, but I just wonder, are we going to continue to think that our Bible beating over the head is going to lead people to God's grace and his truth? I just wonder, do you believe that your good Christian doctrine is going to lead somebody to salvation? I just wonder, do you feel like your ability to lord your righteousness over somebody is going to be the thing that opens their eyes to their sin? I would submit to you, it's the thing that's turning people away from Jesus. We got to meet people where they are. We want to see revival. Meet people where they are and speak in terms that they understand. You see, after Jesus speaks in a term and a language that Nicodemus could understand, he even goes deeper to simplify it. He says this in John 3.16, that's how we get to John 3.16. He says, so God loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, to die on a cross for you and I so we could have relationship. Jesus is making it simple for Nicodemus. And I'm just tired of us making it complicated for people to see Jesus for who he is. I'm tired of it. We gotta stop playing like we've got it all figured out. We gotta stop lording righteousness over people. We need to stop beating people over the head with the Bible and we need to just share the truth that God loves them, that he made them, he sent his son to die for them and he wants them to step into relationship with him. You see, it's the gospel, and it's only the gospel that leads someone to life transformation. And I believe wholeheartedly, in order for us to experience transformation from the gospel, we must first understand the gospel transforms the way we see ourselves. Super simple. The gospel under, uh, transforms the way we see ourselves. You see, it's the gospel that leads us to an understanding that each and every one of us, we have this thing in our life called sin. And sin... Sin led me 
to this place where I was dead, spiritually dead. Sin means that we, we miss the mark. We fall short of God's standard. We all have sin in our life, myself included. Sin is the things that we, we look at knowing that we shouldn't look at it. Sin is the moments where we take things that don't belong to us. Sin is the moments where we lie. Sin is the moments where we, we disobey God. We don't follow God's instruction. Where we lay around with somebody that we have yet to step on the altar with. Sin is the things where we're looking at things late at night that we know we shouldn't look at. And it's creating lust and desires in our heart that aren't from God. We all have sinned. And the Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard. There's no denying it. We all have sinned, and I don't know about you, but you could just thank your great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, because it was through them that sin entered the world. It was through them that, that sin entered the world. What did God do? He told them, you can do anything and everything, but don't eat from that tree. And what did they do? They ate from the tree. Anyone ever spent any amount of time with children? Hey, how many of you know you tell a kid what not to do, what do they do? Exactly what you told them not to do. How I many you know we're no different? Myself included. God tells us what not to do. We end up doing it. And I just need you to understand this today. Sin doesn't make me bad. Sin makes me dead. Because the Bible says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I want you to hear this. Sin may, have killed you. Sin may not have killed you physically, but it's killed you spiritually. But the good news for you today is that there's a God in heaven who says if you believe in your heart that my son's blood covered all of your sins, you're secure in me and I'm giving you eternal life. That's the good news. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just feel like I got to talk to somebody in the room specifically. I don't know how bad you've messed up. I don't know how big your sin is in your life. I don't know how deep or how wide or how far you have gone with your sin life. But here's what I want you to do. No, there's no sin in this world. There's no mistake that you can make that the blood of Jesus can't cover. It covers your sin of the past. It covers your sin in the present. And it covers your sin in the future. He died for all of your sins, not just some of your sins. And I know it's real easy to like stand on a stage and and talk about this sin stuff each and every week, but I, I just got to be honest with you guys. Like, I am no different. I've sinned. I make mistakes. If we could sit down for a cup of coffee, I wish I could sit down with each and every one of you and just tell you about my past. You'd be like, you're a pastor, you know? We all sinned. We've all fallen short. We've, we've all made mistakes. We've all stumbled in the journey. But the good news for you today is, I don't know what your past looks like, but here's what I want you to know, that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future because of the blood of Jesus. It's because of his blood. It's because of his blood. It's because of his blood that covers all of our sin and unrighteousness. But the gospel, it doesn't just transform the way we see ourselves. The gospel, it transforms the way I see others. It transforms the way I see others. I don't want you to miss this here at the exchange. We always talk about living our lives on mission. We must understand if the gospel has impacted me, it hasn't just impacted me for me, it's impacted me to make a difference in the life of others. The gospel, it's a call to action for the unbeliever and also for the believer. 
For the unbeliever, it's trust in Jesus. Entrust your life to him. That word believe in the Greek means to entrust. Entrust your heart, entrust your life, entrust your body, entrust your soul to Jesus. But for the believer, he says entrust your life in the fact that you would step out and make a difference and live on mission. And live on mission. Just feel like we've got so many people in the room that each and every week we we come here and we worship and we gather. But the problem is, that we're so inward focused that we never take our attention off of us and shift it on the fact that there's millions of people that need to be in this room. There's millions of people that need to hear your story. There's millions of people that need to hear how God delivered you and restored you and transformed you and redeemed you and healed you and pursued you. They need to hear it. Why? Because this is the good news. This is the good news. See, in John chapter 3, verse 16, what we realize is, as Jesus tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's a call to action. It moves us to action. It's not just a call, but it should move us to move to action with urgency. See, there's people all around us in in our classrooms. There's people that live underneath the same roof as us. There's people that we, we encounter at the coffee shop. There's people that we encounter at the restaurants. There's people all across the city that daily we encounter, and they need to be in this house. They need to hear your story. They need to encounter what you have encountered. This isn't all about you. It's not all about you. I just always thought about, about it this way. It's the fact that God, he threw you a raft. And he calls you to get on the raft. But not only should you get on the raft, you got to get others on the raft. And that raft, my friends, it's the person of Jesus. He came to save your life. He came to save your soul in your darkest hour. You didn't know it, but he was there. He was there. And he's always there. And he always will be there. You see, the gospel not only calls us to to action in the sense we need to invite people to church. I I love that idea. Like, it's not about just growing this ministry. It's not about just increasing in numbers. It's about helping people encounter what God has for them in this life. But I also believe the gospel transforms us in the way that we see others, not only to live on mission, but it also leads us to extend grace to those who have hurt us and wronged us. Think about this moment in Luke chapter 11. Jesus, he's teaching the disciples to pray. And in verse 4, what we see is Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Forgive us our sins, God, as we forgive those who have sinned against us. See, friends, hear me on this. If we're going to allow the gospel to transform the way we see others, we must learn not only to receive God's grace, but to extend God's grace. I've wronged God. I've messed up. I've sinned against God, and he's given me grace. Therefore, I give grace to others when they sin against me. He gives me grace. Therefore, I give others grace when they wrong me, when they walk out on me, when they betray me, when they lie to me. I give grace to others. Why? Because I have been given grace. And I just want you to hear this today because I just feel this in my heart. There's someone in the room that not only have you been wronged or sinned against by someone, You've been wronged or sinned against by someone who calls himself a follower of Jesus. 
Maybe you've been wronged by a church. Maybe you've been wronged by a leader in the church, a pastor, somebody backstabbed you or pushed you out of their church or made you feel like an outcast or let you down or talked poorly about you and gossiped to others and aired out your laundry to other people. I just want you to know today, church, hear me on this. Those of you who call yourself a part of this gathering, we at the exchange, we don't do that. It's like, this is totally off the script for me. I just feel this in my heart today. I believe that the problem in the church today is that more people are saying no to the church before they can even say yes to Jesus. I just feel this in my heart that more people are saying, nah, I'm good. Not because they walked into the room, but because of what you said to them but because of the way you made them feel, them feel when, you, when you saw them at the local store, the way you cut them off in track. Like many people are saying no to the church and saying no to Jesus before they can even walk in the doors. We got a part to play in this, y'all. I'm just sharing my heart as we kick off this collection. I want you to understand, first we must understand how we have wronged God, sinned against God, how daily we have missed the mark. And other people need to encounter this. We need to extend other people grace. But most importantly, if you're a leader, if you're part of the body of Christ, you must understand what it means to set the example. You gotta set the example. We're not just recipients of the gospel. We gotta learn to live out the gospel. We gotta learn to show grace to others. And like I said at the exchange, we're not a place that's like an insider club. We're not cliquish around here, like that's not what we desire to do, that's not what we stand for. I'm sick and tired of churches that operate like sororities and fraternities. I'm sick and tired of churches that act like it's us four and no more. We are for all types of people. Whether you live different, look different, talk different, we are for you. Why? Because Jesus Christ is for you. And if he's for you, I'm for you. We gotta get to a place where we understand John chapter three, verse 17. We gotta get this in our hearts today. The scriptures say that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And I just wonder if Jesus didn't come to condemn them, why should we? Why should we? Why should we put them out? Why should we make them feel like the outcast? We should never do that. Why? Because Jesus never would. So I just want to say this. I know I'm not the loudest voice in the church at large all across the world. But if you've been wronged by somebody in the church, I am sorry. If a pastor hurt you, I am sorry. If somebody started gossiping about you and airing out your news, I am sorry. If somebody wronged you, if a church made you feel like an out, I am sorry, but please hear me. Don't let that moment sabotage your view of all churches, and most importantly, don't let that view of that person or that church sabotage you of your view of Jesus Christ. Don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. You know, as I close, I just want you to get this point in your heart. See, the gospel not only transforms the way we see ourselves, not only does it transform the way we see others, the gospel, it transforms the way we see God. And it's when I understand my sin was great, but his love was greater. I don't see him as God, I see him as my heavenly father. I don't just see him as Jesus, I see him as Lord over my life, I see him as my savior. It's when I understand that 
God sent his one and only son to die on a cross for me, facing and experiencing the most gruesome death in all of history. I realize grace isn't just a principle, it's a person. Looking back in John chapter 3, what's so interesting about Nicodemus's life is as Nicodemus is there meeting with Jesus in that first encounter, as he's asking all of these questions, we can't deny the fact that Nicodemus got a revelation that this was the Son of God. How do we know? Because at the very end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 19, verse 38, the Bible tells us after Jesus was crucified and his body was taken down, a man by the name of Joseph went to Pilate and he goes, hey, Pilate, can I take Jesus' body? And the Bible says that Pilate tells him, yes, take his body. Not like would have never happened, but there's a whole lot that we could trace back to the Old Testament and see that that was prophesied by God. And in that moment, the Bible tells us in, in John chapter 19, verse 40, that it wasn't just Joseph that appeared on the scene, it was also Nicodemus. What does that mean? This whole time, Nicodemus, he was, he was torn between the two. He's like, yo, I know you're the son of God, but I've got responsibilities over here that I gotta uphold. I've gotta please my family. I gotta please this council. So I'm sorry, Jesus, but I gotta turn my back on you. And what I think is so unique about this story is that's a picture of what you and I do. We know what we should do, but we do what we shouldn't do. Each and every one of us in the room We've turned our back on Jesus and gone the opposite way. But the good news is this, that in spite of the fact that you turned on him, he continues to turn his attention towards you. As I close, I just want you to get this in your heart today. Because as we look at John chapter three, in John chapter 19, all of these moments, they point towards one thing, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the gospel, and the good news of Jesus. And I think there's no better passage in the scripture to look at other than Isaiah 53, when it comes to the gospel and the good news of Jesus. And I wanna read Isaiah 53 to you. And I just really want you to sense the weight of what took place on that day. As Jesus was crucified, it says this, Isaiah 53, verse three, the prophet Isaiah, he says this, he meaning Jesus, he was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him. We looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care, yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away and turned our backs. We have left God's path to follow her own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly. 
yet he never said a word. Jesus, he was, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers and it is slaughtered, he never opened his mouth. I don't want you to miss this. Because of our sin, there had to be a payment. And it couldn't just be any payment. It couldn't be just any sacrifice. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. And it was none of us in this room, it was no one in this world other than Jesus that could fulfill that payment. So Jesus, he willingly took the Father's command and he died on that cross for you and me. Just want you to understand today the story of the crucifixion. It's the fact of the matter that you and I, we're, we're sinners, we've fallen short of God's glory, but God is so kind, he's so loving, he's so merciful that he wanted us to have a way back to himself. So he sent his son Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us. And these Roman soldiers, these men, there were, there were said to be a dozen to hundreds of men that surrounded Jesus at the point of his crucifixion. And what did they do? They braided up a crown of thorns and they pushed that crown of thorns into his head so the thorns were driven to a skull. And after that, they blindfolded Jesus. They tied his hands behind his back. They began to pull his beard out of his face. They began to punch him and kick him. They mocked him, they laughed at him. They spit in his face. They made him look like a fool all the way to the point that after that, they took a whip. And this whip, it was wide enough to cover the width of Jesus' shoulders. And this whip wasn't just any whip, it was a whip that was braided and in the braids of the whip, there you could find metal and glass and hooks at the tip. And for hours, these men switched off whipping Jesus all across his back. They didn't stop. They went for hours and hours, taking turns, humiliating him and mocking him all the way to the point that his flesh was ripped off of his body. And after that, they, they mock Jesus and they say, now it's time to take your cross. And Jesus, he takes this cross that's sent away from 75 pounds to 125 pounds. And for about an hour to two and a half hours, it is said that Jesus carried this cross all the way to the point of his execution destination and there Jesus he, he humbled himself and he laid on that cross after being exhausted and humiliated and mocked and tormented he humbled himself and laid on that cross knowing that God and if he wanted to he could have stopped that moment and set him free but he knew it was the will of God so he didn't even say a word he laid on that cross and in that moment, they pulled these spikes out and they, they, they hammered these spikes into his hands. Then after they uh, drilled these spikes into his hands, they then went on to his feet. And then they hoisted up this cross and there Jesus was suspended a few feet off the ground. 
and they're still mocking him. They're still laughing at him. And in this moment, Jesus, he breathed his last breath. And I just want you to see this picture because as Jesus was on that cross, he was thinking about you and he was thinking about me. He was shedding his blood to cover all of our sins and all of our unrighteousness. Just want you to get this in your heart today. It wasn't just a cross. It was our cross. It was his hands, but it should have been my hands. It was his feet, but it should have been my feet. It was his body that was beaten, but it should have been my body. But God in his love, he sent Jesus. I know as we sit here today and you hear this, this is, this is heavy, this is weighty, but I just want you to understand this gospel, this good news, it should move us to sorrow. It should pain us, it should hurt us. As we remember and reflect what Jesus did for us. But I don't want you to just remember what Jesus did. I want you to reflect on what Jesus did. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that each and every one of us, we must admit that we are sinners. We must confess our sins to God. We must trust that he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We've got to first admit that we're a sinner. Now we must confess our sins to God. And that's exactly what I want to do right here in this moment. I want to create a space and create a moment for us to reflect and confess our sin. I just believe wholeheartedly all throughout scripture, we see that the temple is the meeting place of God in the Old Testament, and they carried around this golden ark and the Ark of the Covenant, and there they would find God and be in God's presence. I believe the altar is a picture of that. And if you feel called and feel led, I just wanna create a space. I don't know who you are, I don't know what you're walking through, but I wanna tell you, today is the day that you find freedom and deliverance, but it starts by confessing your sin to God. We're gonna sing a song in a moment. But this is a moment not for you to just stand and start singing. This is a moment for you to genuinely confess your sins to God. Prayer team, would you come to the altar? If you feel comfortable, just stand to your feet. I want you right now, now is the moment for you to come to the altar and confess your sins to God. Talk to him. Make it known to him. What is that thing that you have yet to Reveal to God. Don't hold back. Now is your moment. Each and every one of us have sinned. Each and every one of us have fallen short of God's standard. Now is your moment to come to the altar and confess your sins.